0: This podcast brought to you by Earthlink.
1: It's Wednesday, February 8th, 2006. I'm Molly Wood, author of CNET's Buzz Report. And
0: I'm Tom Merritt, author of CNET's The Real Deal.
1: Welcome to a special interview segment of Buzz Out Loud, CNET's podcast of indeterminate length. We are thrilled today to have in the studio, per your many requests on the CNET forums, our own CNET CEO, Shelby Bonnie.
2: Yeah. Glad to be with you.
1: Thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Um, you should know we talked in our our regularly scheduled podcast today about how we were really scared. Yeah,
2: so you're not became... going to fire any of us. In yeah,
1: show. I was really
0: scared too. Because
1: <laughs> we There's are a no tough, firing zone. We are tough interviewers. <laughs> Why is CNN so awesome? <laughs> <laughs>
0: But yeah, we put a uh, we put a request out in December and said, okay, what kind of interviews do you want? What kind of people do you want us to have on? And 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 there were some obvious things like uh, Linus Torvalds or Steve or maybe Jobs. some less inter- obvious things like Leo Laporte and, and things like that. But your name came up quite a bit, either your actual name or just the guy who runs CNET. Right? And there were, were there cuss words associated? No, with never. No. no, no. It was all no. It was, it was actually polite.
1: People seem to genuinely want to know okay. what you had to say about CNET, and and obviously, I think everyone who is. Uh, on the net, I guess, or interested in the web is sort of knows that that obviously you're a huge pioneer and CNET is a huge pioneer in terms of the interactive web and advertising online. And so I think people just want to know your thoughts on things.
0: Well, I think you have been with CNET the longest of anybody at this point. Thirteen years. Long
1: time. Wow. Which is crazy because if you follow CNET, you know that we just had our (laughs) 10-year anniversary. So you have the the ability to bend space and time. Well, it took us three
2: years to actually get anything going.
0: So minor detail. Yes. Well, and CNET, and that leads us to our first question. Mm -hmm. CNET did not start as a website. Uh, A lot of people may not realize this. It started as a television Entity uh, and one of our uh, one of our frequent listeners, Andy in Tennessee, asked, "Will there be a CNET TV show again? He really misses it. Maybe a CNET network of shows that would be really cool." Which also leads us to the further question: Where is video and multimedia going? Uh, not only at CNET, but in the marketplace, and how does CNET fit into that? Well, to step back for a second, uh, he is right. We that was original roots and the
2: original business plan that Halsey and I worked on. This was 1992 was the idea, if you remember back to 1992, the great kind of buzz at that time was 500 channels, and there was going to be all these kind of proliferation of channels. And so we had this idea that we're going to build a 24-hour cable network called CNET TV, and then we're going to have a companion online service, CNET Online. And we kind of went around the business plan, and we went to all the cable operators and kind of pitched this idea, and we got nowhere. We got no venture (laughs) funding. We got um, made fun
0: of by all the cable operators. Well, because online in 1992, I mean, they... That was, well, it was crazy. That was and science and, talk to them. Yeah, and,
2: and people would be like, well, so you're saying you're gonna have a TV and a computer in the same room? No one has a computer and a TV in the same room. So <laughs> it didn't take us very long to figure out, you know, stupid idea, uh, at least stupid in terms of our ability to execute. So we really focused on the online and we focused on what which we originally launched was our TV show, CNET Central. And then we launched a block of TV shows around that. And by the way, Ryan Seacrest mm-hmm. made his TV debut Uh, doing The New Edge. Do you hear from him? He doesn't. uh, (laughs) Does he call?
1: Does he write? (laughs) No, he
2: doesn't. I'm really very sad about that. We have not made his uh, (laughs) bibliographical information. But so what's interesting is when you then fast forward today, we did our last TV show probably in 2000 Mm -hmm. and you fast forward to today, I think one of the great ironies of where the web is going is I think the whole notion of a media landscape, that there are newspapers and magazines and cable channels and broadcast stations and Radio and things. I think all of that's going away. And I think there will be a thing in the end, which is content. And you will have expectations of anything that you go to that it will be audio, it will be video, it will be photos, it will be text, it will be
0: interactive, and it will be on demand. Whatever makes sense to the content you're doing. Yeah. And
2: so, I mean, you know, we today don't look and say the Washington Post and CNN are competitive. But I think, you know, five years from now, you'll expect of the Washington Post video and you'll expect of CNN text and they will be seamless from a user's perspective. So which leads us to kind of CNET, which is so kind of irony of all ironies. I think what what we look like, uh, you know, even three years from now is very much like our original idea, which was (laughs) 24-hour cable network, on all the time, on demand, uh, video, audio, text, interactive and on demand. And... It's you know in a funny way it's kind of you know it's um, it's ironic but it's also I think it's incredibly exciting I think we're going to have an ability and we don't have roots so we don't have to worry about you know what we leave behind we can really build what users want and I think you know I think you'll see a lot more great video product coming out and a lot more that we do in terms of what, what you traditionally would think about as a show but done on the web.
0: Right. Well, and not only is the computer in the same room as the television, in a lot of cases the, the television is a computer yeah. uh, with a TiVo or a media center attached to it or something like I, that. I just
2: think that – I think everything is in the process of changing and I think that if you look today for a lot of us, you know, I'm a huge TiVo user uh, and – I experience TV, you know, as I want it, on demand, I fast forward through the commercials, I do the whole thing. And so as you as you move forward and you start saying, imagine a TiVo device is IP enabled or I'm just do, you know, hooking my laptop up, I think you're exactly right. I just that's that will be my expectation. I will want to experience content how I want it. And I think CNET and the the other, you know, other brands we have are incredibly well positioned to take advantage of that. And I in fact, you know, want to make sure that we're on the forefront of really defining what the next new media company is of the future.
1: So I was just at um NATP, the National Association of Television Program Executives, and they are extremely terrified of essentially what you've just outlined. But the interesting thing is that you're also a pioneer in advertising. Are you the president of the Internet Advertising? I was Bureau? I was
2: the chairman of the Internet Adverti- chairman. of the Interactive Advertising Bureau and I'm currently on the executive committee.
1: So they so what is the advertising model, basically, that kind of helps? Or as you see it, it how much of a role does advertising p- play there? What does it mean for content? Because like, you, just,
0: you just talked about fast forwarding through the commercials on yeah, the TiVo. You
1: exactly. Know? Is there, is there, you know, are we going to have downloadable shows that include commercials? Or are we going to have to find a totally new advertising model? I think you'll see a little bit of
2: everything. And I think the one model that does go away is the model that advertising is just a necessary annoyance. And that, you know, that I give you eight minutes of TV or six minutes of TV programming for free, and then I get to impose upon you for two minutes, and then I go back and give you uh, content. I think that notion and that ads are just, you know, kind of almost like drive by shootings, I think that doesn't work. I think what advertisers are really going to have to ask themselves is can I create something that's relevant and valuable and engaging and interesting? Because I think we all know. Advertising can be very valuable when it's something we're interested in, and mm-hmm. they've done it in a way that's interesting. I mean, look, I think mean, for a lot of people, the Super Bowl on Sunday was much more interesting for the ads than it was for the, actually the game. Right. And there was you know, incredible buzz, and people are still downloading the, the the commercials, and you can go vote on them, and go to tv.com, and you know, we have all the different commercials available. And that is when you took and you said, my perception is that I have to view an ad as content, and I really put high production value into it. You can get good stuff,
1: right? And those ads aren't even as targeted, maybe as online ads could be in the future, right? I think that's
2: right. I think the, I think when you look five years out, the stuff that is most affected is anything that's mediocre, because people that people are going to be very protective of their time, and they're going to say, "Look, I I have access to so many good things. Why would I accept anything that is not good?" So that means TV shows, movies, and stuff like that that are mediocre won't get watched. I think that ads that are mediocre, people will fast-forward through them. And so it's just, in a good way, it's raising the bar, and I think it will be driven by users, and users will vote every day on what they like and what they don't like. And I think the net impact is that five years from now, the quality of our media experiences will be significantly better than they are today. And I think that's a great thing for all users. Well, mm-hmm. I think
0: you're right. Because when you talk about IP television, you have the ability to send different ads to different people. And uh, and we've even discussed the option of, uh, of people being able to vote, you know, thumbs down on a, on a type of ad right. to Don't help the advertisers again. realize, hey, I've seen it too much or it's not right for me. And really developing, like, like you say, the ads that people... You know, because everybody likes to say, Oh, I hate the ads, but there are there are things that you do like. I mean the Super Bowl is a good example of that. Although the ads sim- weren't as good this year. Or mm-hmm. a simple
2: or a simple example like the yellow pages, which is mm-hmm. you know, the yellow pages full of ads. And if you said you can either have the yellow mm-hmm. pages with ads or without ads, I think we'd all take it with ads, because that tells us what credit cards they take and where it's located and all that stuff. So the the fact that you've been kind of captive and passive has meant that Advertisers can, in fact, be lazy and they could put out things that they wanted to be, and they didn't have to care. Like, they didn't really care if you liked it or not. And so I think what happens is advertisers have to care, just like programmers have to care, because, you know, I have the eight o'clock slot on NBC. Well, you know what? If I don't push, put a good show on, no one's going to show up. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and I think that's what the world looks like. And I think that's just – it's raising the bar on quality. That's a great thing for all of us. I
1: think DVRs have definitely contributed to the industry feeling like they have to make better ads because they have to be interesting in that first five seconds so that hopefully you either won't fast forward or you'll rewind and watch it because you'll go, what was that?
2: Yeah, I think the other interesting thing on advertising in general is the growing importance of influencers. Which is, you know, it's funny, you know, the TV market forever uh, relied on the fact that they would use their own TV programming to promote other TV shows. And so, you know, the way you'd hear about a show is you'd, you'd watch a show you like and they'd promote the next one or that they put the next one right afterwards. Well, it's, you know, it's interesting. Um, I have a really good friend, John, and John, you know, we were trading notes on shows we like. And so he said, you haven't seen Entourage, you need to watch Entourage.
0: That I'm like, show is awesome. Great, it's an awesome <laughs> show.
2: And... The way I experienced this was signing up for a season pass on my TiVo, but it was totally none of the recommendation of a friend of mine. And whether it's you know literally direct recommendations from your friends or from a community, like you know what would the CNET community recommend for either a particular product mm-hmm. or other things, I think people are going to look more towards filters right. in how they you know what they watch, you know what products they buy, and things like that. And so also, how do you as a marketer think about how do I play into how do I arm the influencers to help them do a better
1: job? How do of I get them talking, communicating to me, talking yeah. about my thing, discoverability?
0: Now, what about uh, non-traditional advertising, and especially, I think what's interesting to our audience here is product placement and the you know how how much are people going to have to put up with? Because there was a little bit of a hubbub around a show recently that that changed the narrative a bit to fit an advertiser, mm-hmm. uh, and people felt a little beat over the head. And I think people learned a lot from that. But what? Not only where is product placement going, do you think, but what what kinds of other non-traditional ads can people expect? I and mean, you know, it's it's all a balancing act
2: because you've seen I think a lot of shows have gone too far. I'm a I'm a big fan of twenty-four and mm-hmm. you know, they're in the garage of this, this was last season, in the garage of twenty four, they're running through the garage and they're like, Look, a Ford F one fifty, let's jump in it. It's over the top. Or every sure. every like hour he has a different, a different cell phone. A different cell phone. Yeah. We <laughs> talked
1: about this recently. He had a trio in the first two hours, and then the next two hours he had like a Motorola flip phone.
2: And the Crazy. Cisco, uh, you know, security yeah. <laughs> system pops up. And so I think some of that stuff is is over is overdone. It, can I
1: have some more of
0: your Aquafina? Molly? <laughs> <laughs> Not that's right a, now. That but that's I'll a nice Dell computer you have over there. <laughs> <laughs>
2: so um, I think it can be overdone, and you're gonna have to find a balancing act. I do think that that there are gonna be some other non-traditional. You know, Nike's done a really interesting ad. Uh, which I think it's Ronaldo, the soccer player in mm-hmm. Brazil, and they did a a video on a handheld of him kind of putting on his new boots and right. kind of playing and bouncing the ball around and then doing some just extraordinary things that you can't believe are true. That thing has been seen gazillions of times, mm-hmm. downloaded, talked about, run on TV shows and stuff like that. So also, you know, how do we – How do? It, it's all going to come down to how do we make it compelling and interesting and something that people want to talk about because – You know, the new world today is about people talking to each other and communicating, whether it's on the Internet or not. And how do you as a marketer play into that in a way? Because you'll also, you know, I think we'd all agree when product placement is overdone, you get a negative feedback. And you know what? People spend then days talking about that, which is not as a marketer what you want. Mm
1: -hmm. So that leads kind of nicely into this reader question from Jasmus. I think it's um, James. He just—I think so.
0: Somebody else had James, so he put an so S so he put there. an
1: S in there. But I like to say Jasmus. <laughs> um, how do you feel companies like CNET are intertwined with the ad generating and search engine giants like Google and Yahoo? If you feel there is any dependency, is it a mutual dependency? I.e., if CNET provides the content to be found, then the search engines find it.
2: I think two things. You know, one is if you talk, you know, if you talked in and, and hear the the folks at Google or Yahoo, I mean one of the things they talk about with search is search is. It, incredibly dependent on good things being on the web. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think that they realize that having a vibrant, healthy content world is really important. I think on the flip side, I'm a believer that the, the kind of the search phenomena or the resurgence in the last four years has been incredibly good for content. It used to be, you know, quote unquote, portals would do these big deals. And as a company, you'd have to go pay a bunch of money. And they didn't really care if you were good or not at it. They were just, they cared about driving revenue. And what I think search engines have done it, is they provided a venue based on some sort of algorithm that tends to bias towards quality. You hope uh, it's a great way for us as content providers to get people to sample and know more about us. I think the object for all of us though has to be how do we turn someone in from a sampler into a user? Right. And so whether it's things like my products or other things, you know, how do we build a bigger, more lasting relationship with you as a user.
1: Well, and Jacob Nielsen had an article recently on a similar vein where he said that websites almost need to, that search engines now have too much power and that websites need to sort of get back to basics in terms of trying to build stickiness. Would you say that we've gotten to the point now where it's almost, we do almost have to sort of pull back and not live or die by by Google's algorithm changes?
2: Yeah, I think that, I mean, there's so much focus in the business on kind of what they call search engine optimization. How do you build and make yourself more accessible for the search engines? You can't think about that as a big part of your traffic. I mean it's a great way to get samplers. But uh, I think the point is dead on, which is you really have to look and say, I I need someone to want to invest their time and make this part of their day. And I think as part of that, there's also some real beliefs. I think you have to focus on openness. You have to do what's right by users. You have to be willing to point to competitors. You have to be willing to do all of that stuff because that's in the end what's going to earn you the loyalty of your users.
0: I think that ties nicely into that next question from Arthur T. Uh, he asks, what are your thoughts on sites like Dig and the upcoming Newsvine.com? Is it likely that CNET networks will create or acquire a site that places users at the assignment desk? Uh, and if so, what impact would that have on the credibility of a site like CNET or com, even if the sites are separate brands within the network? I think I think user and user
2: tagging and kind of user programming is a piece of the puzzle and I think it's an important piece and it's a really good way for um, you know people to get a sense of what other people care about and what's important to other people having said that I still think that the journalism as we know it is incredibly important to have people that make it their business and their day to show up and understand categories and understand what's important and to tell you what you don't know and to tell you things that are important that you don't know or think are important right now I mean there is when you look at you know the traditional world or media world like the new york times there's incredibly important signaling that happens when the editors decide what goes on the front page or not mm-hmm. it tells you this is an important story this is not an important story and so i think there's still a role i mean you know a certain amount of agenda setting yeah, that, yeah. and it's you know it, it, i think it's really helpful to know what users are caring about now it's also helpful to know what some really smart people who make it their business think is going to be an issue a year from now that you don't know about. And so it's finding that right balance uh, between the two, which I think is incredibly important. I think News.com has done some really interesting things in that, which is you know, how do they you know, use things, whether it's News.com Extra or other things. How are there ways to involve in popularity and things like that? But also they cannot walk away from their responsibility as journalists and as, as subject experts to, be, to tell
0: you and to have opinions as to what they think is important. Yeah, and we try to balance that right here on on the podcast mm-hmm. as far as taking in user opinions and, and making them a huge part of the show, but also Molly and I and Veronica decide, you know, this is what we're going to talk about every mm-hmm. day. So it's it's a give and
1: take. And the user input, I think, is almost, what I think is interesting about it is that super peering effect that you talked about earlier, where there are some people who you trust more than others, some users who tell you, hey, this is an important, I agree, you know, this is important, but they also almost localize the agenda for you, like the New York Times may set that larger national agenda, but then the bloggers say, "Yeah, and this is the experience in this town, or on this website, or you know, on this blog."
2: I think that's right, and I would say, I mean, the New York Times probably goes too far, right? Which is yeah. very easy <laughs> as journalists to kind of get in the ivory tower and be like, you know, I know all the answers, and you don't know any of them. It's finding it's finding that right balance, and it's understanding that you know you are part you as a journalist are part of a broader community and how do you participate and interact and take signaling and also recognize there's a lot of people out there that are a lot smarter than you are. Mm -hmm. Having said that, you gotta, you know, it's it's your job to show up every day and to be able to edit that and you know you can also provide real help. I mean you can tell the broader user base, you know, these three thoughts are really smart. I know Mm -hmm. enough to know that they know much more about the topic than I do. That's incredibly valuable. And so I think one of the Big changes is the movement from journalists also functioning as editors, and that that's a critical part of your responsibility, which is to not only understand and write and report and do you know do whatever you need to about your area of expertise, but also to help uh, you know the broader community know what's good and what's bad and what are differing opinions. I mean, my my dream is still I would love I'm a big fan of a Thomas Friedman. I would like Thomas Friedman to come in every morning. And to tell me the five stories that he thinks are the most mm-hmm. important stories that happened in that day with two
1: sentences as to why. Uh-huh. And also I'd like that to be free and not on time select. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but that's my a, little issue.
2: But a very selfless. I mean and, yeah. you know, my assumption is maybe one of those stories will be a New York Times story. But that, that will make sure that I go there every day mm-hmm. and to really you know, be able to strengthen a relationship with the times ultimately.
1: So the big issue that we've been talking about all week is uh, net neutrality and the sort of tiered – this is the the issues portion of the show um, – this sort of tiered internet proposal that we've seen from Verizon, Bell South, SBC. And then it's kind of the, t- the corollary, the tiered email proposal that came out this week from A- AOL and Yahoo. And so – We just had a huge rant on it on the regular edition. (laughs) So (laughs) So all we do is rant about it. But um, as head of a large content company, probably larger than most people realize, with a lot of different services, including pretty broadband intensive stuff like video, what are your thoughts about net neutrality?
2: I'm very worried about it as an issue. I think that one of the wonderful things about the internet has been the diversity of opinion and that you have content producers all over the place and there's a there's a fabric of the internet which is wonderful and the ability also for it to regenerate itself and for new services like a, whether it's a Wikipedia or a MySpace that kind of you know, have come out in the last five years. I mean that's a wonderful thing. And so if you go back to the earlier comments which is – the world gets more video intensive, more audio intensive, and stuff like that. If we go to a world where there is tiered uh, access, the risk is that we go back to the old model, which is what kept CNET from having a twenty-four hour cable network. Mm-hmm. Which is, you get gatekeepers. Some people have good access. Some people have bad access. If you're in the bad access camp, you can't actually get a business started. That's a that's a bad thing. I mean, it, it will slow innovation. It will slow choice. It will create a groups of haves and have-nots, and the haves will have money, and the have-nots will not. And that, I think, just from a from a business standpoint, from a societal standpoint, I think is a really, really negative thing. And so, you know, my hope is that that um, you know people will band together and let their voices be heard because I think it's an incredibly important issue. And the hard part is that the people that will be most harmed are users and the small guys, and Mm -hmm. those are the folks. That don't have the expensive, expensive lobbyists in in uh, Washington and aren't taking you know Congress people to to football games and stuff like that, but they're the people who'll be most impacted. And I think it would be a great detriment to what the internet can mean for for our country. Well, and, and that's
0: where. Things like a MySpace or even going back, things like a Yahoo, that's where they come from. Right. They, they build from a small idea. And that's the beauty of the Internet is these small ideas can grow into to huge things. And if all of a sudden there's a tiered Internet and it's an unlevel playing field, it squashes that. And the other thing is they're already getting paid. I mean, I want to put the lie to the telcos on this. They're saying, oh, we don't want Google to have a free lunch or, you know, by implication, we don't want have CNET have a free lunch there's not a free lunch. I mean, CNET pays to get on the net already, yeah. and people pay to get internet access to read CNET.
2: Mm-hmm. That's so, right. And if they think that fundamentally that we're being charged too little, raise prices, more, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> uh, try to raise prices at least. I mean, this isn't, I mean, we're better off making sure that there's open access, that there's a level playing field, because uh, that's where we're going to get innovation, we're going to get creativity, and we're going to keep the you know this from being kind of a, a, a recreation of the media man that, right. that that you know where there's kind of a limited subset of people um, who ha- who you know can speak and and report on things.
1: It seems to me that part of Part of the thing, okay, one of the things that concerns me is that part of this seems to be about Verizon and telcos, other telcos, wanting to provide and profit from their own services. So I guess I wonder, do you think there's an inherent conflict of interest there in the, in the idea that the people who control Internet access are themselves trying to kind of potentially hog their own bandwidth or, or maximize their ability to use their own bandwidth to profit in similar ways, in almost competitive ways?
2: I mean the, you know, they be all, a utility. Well, they're all businesses, and that's the and so, I mean, I think there is a broader question: as to, you know, from a from a societal standpoint, do we think about open and even access to the internet as as part of what it means to you know to be a citizen? And you know, you get in a lot of very complicated public policy issues. Yeah. I do think that though it might be a business decision, it could be a very short-sighted business decision, which is. Uh, in the end, you're better off having a thousand flowers blooming and people coming up with, you know, video applications that no one's thought about and great, you know, clips and applications and stuff like that, which I think will take use of the internet up and will ultimately drive more volume and thus more business for them. So I, you know, it might be one way from a business perspective to look at it right now. I just think it's short term because I think it will really stunt the growth of what the, of what the internet can be from a communication standpoint. Uh, and I think it could be one of the most, single most transformational things we've ever seen in the world. Mm-hmm. All right, we got one,
1: one last question. One last question here we're from. Is cooking in here?
0: Yeah, from Tyler. <laughs> yeah, can, uh, we need to talk about HR research or <laughs> <laughs> HVAC. Uh, when you're buying an electronic device, PDA, TV, computer, whatever, Tyler wants to know do you look on CNET for the reviews to aid in your decision? And he's glad to have you on the podcast. Uh, he gives the podcast crew a pay raise, and he wants you to buy Veronica a really nice Mac. <laughs> <laughs> Those are Tyler's words, not ours. <laughs> little um,
1: things, just little questions from Tyler.
0: <laughs> but no, seriously, the uh, the question do you ha- and and obviously you you will answer yes. But how much do you use CNET? What parts of it do you use I use it a lot? I and mean, the
2: the truth is, you know, when we started CNET, we did it because we all love gadgets. I mean, that was the you know we always speak that you know where we've been most successful is really addressing the pat you know the passion of people that really care about something and you know we were all people that love gadgets and we loved what was happening you know kind of in the whole digital world and so you know I'm embarrassed to say I have more digital cameras I I have like a graveyard of 15 digital cameras (laughs) um, you know multiple TiVos I mean, I I love to try just about everything and I'm a huge fan I think CNET's done a great job in terms of helping me make uh, good decisions on that one of the things i would point out that i've that i've adored probably most of all has been the video reviews that have really come out in the last two years it's been i think the ability to see a product and have someone talk about it and express it and hold it in their hand and talk about the feel and stuff like that it, it's it's given me so much more information that's made it so much more helpful uh where there was still before you know you'd read a review and stuff like that and you're like ah god i might still go down to the mm-hmm. you know best buyer yeah. circuit city just to give it a look and I, I feel very comfortable now in terms of all the information that's given that, that I mean, I feel secure in, in making a decision. I think it's been incredibly helpful.
1: What's the last gadget you bought?
2: <laughs> God, I've got uh, – I just <laughs> bought a, a, a new camcorder. I bought a you – know, we have three kids. And so I bought a, a new camcorder um, uh, from Panasonic, which I really – it's one of the three-chip models and I really mm-hmm. like it. It's oh, a yeah? little big, but uh, it's been really fun. And I've got a I – mean, one of my favorite – Products I've got the Canon EOS 20D. Oh yeah, uh, camera which I just that's nice. I love I love that thing. I mean, it's the it's one of the best.
0: What non CNET sites do you go to? Um, <laughs> none. No, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm a pretty I'm a what? pretty. It's wi- actually locked out. You can't get. No, you I'm can't. a pretty <laughs> wide
2: ranging surfer. I mean, we have some great sites whether it's CNET or GameSpot or TV.com or stuff like that. But um, I go to a lot of the news sites. Mm-hmm. Uh, You know, there's some good, you know, there's some great blogs that focus just on this uh, on this category and I spend time there. Um, You know, I'm a sports fan. I go there, you know, use Google. I use Yahoo for different things. Uh, I'm pretty, I've remained a pretty uh,
0: wide ranging surfer. So all
1: right. Thanks for coming on. Real pleasure. That's thank it. you.
0: Thanks a lot, Shelby. 1 800 CNET is the number for voicemail, buzz at cnet.com for email, and of course, forums.cnet.com. The Buzz Out Loud Lounge is the place to find out if uh, Shelby's going to come back again and all kinds of other things. So I'll <laughs> come back there. anytime you want me. Right. Great. Thanks a lot. Thank we'll thank see you all later. Bye. Later.